1990, former Will County Sheriff's Deputy Robin Abrams was gearing up to testify in a federal lawsuit she had filed against her former employer, which included the local county sheriff and several other officers within the department, including a former boyfriend. The lawsuit was a result of a year of harassment where Robin had been subjected to over 100 allegedly false complaints and multiple baseless arrests. 18 days before her first hearing in the case, Robin would pass her father on the road, waving as she went by. This was the last time her family would ever see her. Over the years, multiple digs would occur, mob connections would arise, and more questions than answers would start to pour out. This is Midwest Mystery Files, Episode 18, The Disappearance of Robin Abrams, Part 2. Hello everyone, and welcome to Midwest Mystery Files. I'm your host, Jeremiah, with just a few quick things before we start. Midwest Mystery Files is a true crime podcast focused on missing and murdered cases within the Midwestern region of the United States. I can be found on all major podcast platforms, as well as on YouTube with delayed episodes. Social media and contact info will be listed at the end of the episode. Before we begin, if you wish to support the podcast and help fund article and record searches, as well as get early access to episodes, a bonus episode every month, and voting rights, I encourage you to check out my Patreon at www.patreon.com backslash midwestmysteryfiles. If you're not looking for perks, but want to just help out one time, I am on Venmo as well, at MidwestPod. I'm currently sitting at one patron, so I would like to thank Zane for his help. Now, on to today's case. Just a quick recap of last episode, up to where we are now. Robin Renee Abrams joined the Will County Sheriff's Office in 1986 as an auxiliary deputy at the behest of Tony Marquez, another auxiliary deputy. Auxiliary deputies were only volunteers, and this not being enough for Robin, she decided to go full-time. Robin was hired by the Sheriff's Office in January of 1988 and was selected to attend the Police Training Institute in Springfield, Illinois. She would graduate the following March. In May of 1988, Robin began a relationship with Tony Marquez, who at the time was 20 years Robin's senior. In October of 1988, Robin would learn that Marquez was married and an argument would ensue that would end the relationship and would result in Abrams being struck by Marquez on the face. Following this event, Robin would be let go from the sheriff's office in December of 1988, and throughout 1989 she would face constant harassment and a slew of false complaints at the hands of Tony Marquez and several members within the Will County Sheriff's Office. She would be arrested at least three times, and at one point was left in a felony holding cell on a misdemeanor charge with several male inmates. Robin would face trial on two of the charges, but would be found not guilty. In November of 1989, an order of protection would be issued against Tony Marquez for Robin and her mother, Barbara Abrams. Robin would proceed to file a federal lawsuit against the Will County Sheriff's Office for sexual harassment and wrongful termination. Named in the lawsuit was Tony Marquez, Will County Sheriff John Johnson, Deputy Chief Robert Brown, Deputy Chief Raymond Van Dyke, Deputy Anthony Lucenti, Auxiliary Deputy Charles Masica, Sergeant Thomas Carey, and Sergeant Lawrence Lawfer. All these men were either involved in harassment or arrests against Robin Abrams, 
On October 4, 1990, 18 days before she was set to testify, 28-year-old Robin Abrams passed her father on Goodenow Road, outside of Beecher, Illinois. She was later seen that day in Joliet, Illinois, at a gas station. Tony Marquez was also seen in the area. At 3 a.m. on October 5th, Robin's car was found in Harvey, Illinois. Robin has never been seen again. She was reported missing October 5th. Three days later, Will County handed the case over to the Illinois State Police. A witness later reported seeing the car dropped off by two men in a black and chrome tow truck. The car was locked, but inside it was Robin's keys and a camera. Her purse would be found nearby three days later. The witness who saw the car being dropped off would later pick Tony Marquez and his stepbrother, John Romo, out of a photo lineup as the men who were driving the tow truck. In 1991, Tony Marquez was removed from his service as a Will County Auxiliary Officer, and he and John Romo would be subpoenaed by a grand jury investigating Robin's disappearance to submit blood and hair samples, as well as appear in a police lineup. The Illinois Supreme Court, however, would find this to be an invasion of privacy without proof of a crime, and the men would neither have to turn over samples nor stand in a police lineup. The last movement in the case that we covered was in 1995, when a house in Joliet had its basement dug up after ground-penetrating radar was f- had found discrepancies in the ground. The Illinois State Police declined to state what brought them to the home, but it was noted that the basement was poured four to six weeks before Robin's disappearance. The ISP would only state, quote, other things happen after the basement is poured. The dig would turn up nothing. That brings us to where we are now. After 1995, nothing happens in the public eye for many years. The family would call and ask for updates, always being told that nothing new had come to light, and just being told investigators had exhausted all leads, and they were merely just waiting for a body or a confession to move things along. 2004 would unfortunately see the death of Barbara Abrams, who would sadly have to leave this world without ever knowing what happened to her daughter. The family, however, would carry on the good fight. On August 13th, 2012, Robin's 50th birthday, her sister, Jody Walsh, would stand on the steps of the Will County Courthouse, handing out missing persons flyers with Robin's information on them. Jody would tell the Herald News, quote, It was raining, but I did it anyway. I felt like I was supposed to do that. The article would go on to give a brief overview of the case and then end with Jody stating, quote, I know she's dead, but there's people that did this that need to pay for it. I've never given up hope. I never will. Until I die, I will never give up hope. Somebody knows something, and hopefully they'll do the right thing. Sometime this same year, 2012, a private investigator named Cindy Shervino would come to Jody and through various interviews and Freedom of Information Act requests, Cindy had done extensive independent investigation on Robin's case and had uncovered new information not known by the family. After this, Jody would then be put in touch with Steve Knickram, a retired investigator and lieutenant with the Will County Sheriff's Office, who would have even more information for Jody, as well as some enlightening insight into the investigation, as well as the Sheriff's Office as a whole. They would later go on to the Unfound podcast with Ed Denstel, and both provide extensive interviews on the case. 
Jody in 2016, and Steve in 2020. A bulk of everything talked about in this episode, up until about the year 2017, will be a combination of those interviews. If this case strikes a chord with you, and you want to know more, I would highly encourage you to check out those interviews, as I will be touching on what I find to be the most major points, but all the information that both individuals provide is very enlightening to the whole situation. I'm going to start a few years before Robin's disappearance to give a few more anecdotes about the Will County Sheriff's Office and Tony Marquez. There are a few things here that will stray away from Robin and even Tony Marquez, and while I don't want to lose focus on Robin, I do also think it's important to shed a bit more on the Sheriff's Office as they are a major player here as well. According to Steve Knickrum, he had worked part-time as a police officer in Piatone in Will County before joining the Will County Sheriff's Office in 1985. During his probationary period, Steve alleges that his phone lines were being tapped. He could hear the clicking anytime he tried to use the phone. Steve filed a complaint with the phone company, and it turned out the husband of a woman who worked in dispatch thought the woman was having an affair with Steve. The man recruited an auxiliary deputy who worked at the phone company to perform the tap on Steve's phone as well as two dispatchers. Steve was called into a meeting with the sheriff at the time, John Shelley, and had the whole situation turned around on him as if he was the one doing something wrong. He was then slapped with a 10-day suspension. Steve noted that around the time he started with the sheriff's office, a friend who worked in the office as well warned him to stay away from several high-ranking officials as they were not men he would want to get roped into dealing with because they were not the straightest of shooters. At the end of the account of the phone tapping, it's alluded that the man who was married to the dispatcher was one of those people. When it comes to Steve and Tony Marquez, the two were barely even acquaintances, but Steve did note that there was one night where he was called to a domestic situation, and Tony Marquez and another auxiliary deputy were called in for backup. According to Steve... The dispute was merely a screaming match, and the two were separated. Steve stayed inside to talk to the woman, and the man went out with Marquez and the other deputy. According to Steve, the individual told the auxiliary deputies something along the lines of, fuck off, and they proceeded to break the man's ankle. Steve would note that he refused to arrest the individual, but his lieutenant, one Carl Zelensky, who also oversaw the auxiliary deputies, instructed Marquez and the other deputy to take him in. Lieutenant Zelensky and Tony Marquez will come into play again shortly. To bring back around to Robin, though, Steve Knickrum and Robin Abrams were acquainted, but did not know each other very well. Despite this, however, he would have a number of roles in the story that has kept him close to Robin's case, both before and after her disappearance. Steve would note that the two, on occasion, did share a squad car, as he used it during his night shift, and Robin would have it during the day. He noted that she seemed friendly and professional. Steve was unaware of the relationship between Robin and Tony Marquez, and was also unaware of her being let go from the sheriff's office. And working nights and talking only to the few other deputies on the shift left Steve generally unaware of what was happening outside of his work time. He would explain that during either the summer of 89 or 90, as he couldn't remember the year for sure, Steve was resting for his night shift when he was awakened during the day to the sounds of a scuffle outside of his house. Outside, on the street, 
Robin, was being apprehended by Will County Sheriff's deputies, which included both Tony Marquez and Lieutenant Carl Zelinsky. He would note that the deputies appeared to be a bit rough in their technique, and that Robin was yelling for Steve's attention once she saw him. Steve approached the situation to see what was going on, and to see if any assistance was needed. Zelensky would state that Robin had broken the antenna off of Tony's car, and the situation was under control. The last thing Steve heard as he was walking away is Lieutenant Zelensky saying, quote, Someone ought to kill this bitch. As Steve noted, he wasn't sure what year this was, but I would say it was likely 1989, as 1990 was after the federal lawsuit was filed. There's also two complaints listed as damage to property from Marquez on August 14th and August 23rd, 1989. It was noted by Steve that he lived near the Will County Fairgrounds, and the fair was going on at the time, in which case deputies would have been working. Robin was living in Beecher at the time, and it was a straight shot into Piatone if she was heading west. It's important to note, Carl Zelinsky is not named in Robin's lawsuit. However, it is interesting that there are two questionable events tying him directly to Tony Marquez, one of which also involves Robin. Steve would be unaware of any more situations with Robin until he was called to the Abrams home in Beecher on October 5, 1990, as he was the officer who took Robin's missing persons report. After taking Robin's report, Steve handed it off to an investigator, and as such, his connection to the case dissipates for a few years. After Robin's disappearance in October of 1990 is where some of the information provided to Jody Walsh, Robin's sister, by the investigator Cindy comes into play. Cindy had spent extensive time searching for files or transcripts related to Robin's lawsuit and deposition through FOIAs and with speaking directly with people working at Will County and the recorder's office. Any files pertaining to the lawsuit and deposition seem to have vanished. While it has been 20 years since the filings, this is all stuff that should have been archived and easily accessible. For a little more clarification, the deposition would have still went on without Robin, just without her testimony, as she wasn't present, but it would still have the testimony of everyone else. If you think missing paperwork is suspicious, just hold tight because we'll have more of it later. Cindy was also able to uncover that no one named in Robin's lawsuit outside of Tony Marquez was questioned in Robin's disappearance. Marquez's alibi had him at the bar with his stepbrother, John Romo, the evening Robin disappeared, and for this they were named persons of interest, which is the only designation they would ever have. Last episode, I noted that Marquez and Romo were also selected out of a photo lineup by the man who saw Robin's car dropped off, and the truck was from a mafia-owned towing company. I'm not 100% sure if the family was aware of the towing company, but they did not find out about the photo lineup until the information was brought to them by Cindy. Much like missing paperwork, the mafia will come up again as well. I didn't talk much about Robin's car last episode. Robin's red 1989 Dodge Daytona hatchback, which had the keys and a camera with no film locked inside, was looked over. Steve notes in his interview that a Will County sergeant was matched to a partial print on the truck, but it was later determined to not belong to the individual. This sergeant wasn't anyone named in any reports or harassment against Robin, so make of that what you will. Next, while there was a dig that was known about in 1995, Cindy was able to uncover information about another one that occurred in 1996. This one 
was not known to the family. It was, however, known to Steve Knickram. As evidenced by a January 1996 incident report, Steve, who was now an investigator at Will County, had been called to the home of Arthur Art Burchett outside of Moni, Illinois in Will County. According to Steve, Art Burchett was an individual who ran on the fringes of the Chicago mob. He was also a standard snitch, working commonly with what Steve called the Tri-County Vehicle Task Force, which was a task force that dealt with vehicle crime in Chicago and surrounding areas. Will County deputies had been called to the resident by Art Burchett's son on accusations of abuse. While talking to the officers, Art's son would start divulging that his father was in possession of, among other things, a number of firearms he was not supposed to have, three stolen vehicles, several fraudulent car titles, six stolen bathtubs, and a number of items stolen from construction sites. He was also tapped into his neighbor's incoming electrical line to avoid paying an electric bill. A search warrant would be executed on the property, and deputies would find the aforementioned items, plus much more. According to Steve Knickram, while interviewing Art Burchett about all the stolen items, Art would decide to throw out some leverage and tell Steve that he not only knew what may have happened to Robin Abrams, but he also knew where she was buried. Art would claim that he knew both Robin as well as Tony Marquez, and they had even been out to his property several times while they were seeing each other because Art was building a race car for Tony. He would go on to tell Steve that at some juncture, himself and an associate were sitting in a coffee shop with Dickie and Clem Messino. Dickie and Clem were two mob-connected individuals, being the cousins to known Chicago outfit enforcer William Messino, and they also owned a towing company and several garages. According to Art, one of the Messinos told him that they were the two men who dropped off Robin's car the night it was left in Harvey, Illinois, and that Art himself may have Robin buried on his property. Steve doesn't really go into the next part, maybe because Jody already covered it in her interview, or he was just divulging a lot of information and may have forgot. But in Jody's interview, she tells that right around the time that Robin disappeared, Art Burchette claimed he was up late one night and he saw a black sedan, similar to what a lot of the mob guys drove, come onto his property, drive it over to the edge, and stop. Art explained that he could not tell what they were doing, but after they left, he checked the spot and there was a freshly covered depression in the ground, big enough to fit a human body. Art never questioned it at the time, because he knew if the mob wanted to bury something out there, it was better for his health to just not worry about it. Now, Steve would note that Art Burchette was a known liar, so he wanted to speak to the other man that was in the coffee shop with Art and the Messino brothers. The man was never named, but it would turn out he was already in jail and involved in an investigation with the Secret Service. Steve was able to get a hold of the agent assigned to the man, and the agent did ask about the story told by Art, and the man confirmed that the Messinos did indeed tell them that story. At the time Art was spilling this information, the Messino brothers were in a federal prison out of state. Steve did try to get approval to travel and speak with them, but was denied. He would note that traveling was not an uncommon practice, and in murdered and missing cases, it was generally always approved, making it extremely strange that this was not. Coming back around to Art Burchette's property, a dig was approved there, but once again, somebody in the higher ranks of Will County would do nothing to help the suspicion surrounding the department. According to Steve, when he arrived on site with the dig crew, a deputy chief with Will County named John Moss was already on site and informed them that they were not to dig where Art told them. 
as the depression in the ground, which was still visible, was merely a drainage pipe, and they were to dig several hundred feet in a different direction. Steve would push back, but Moss refused to allow the dig there. The crew would find nothing where they did dig. The next year, after an election and a new sheriff was in place, Steve would get another dig approval at the site. The spot where they wanted to dig the year before had clearly been disturbed, and it was clear from the new depression that whatever had been there had been removed. After all this, Art would also never be convicted on any of the charges he was brought up on. Before moving on, I do want to talk about the mob just a bit more. Nothing that pertains to Robin directly, but to Will County. Steve would note that there were rumors, but also a high probability, deputies in eastern Will County were complicit in helping Chicago mob member Albert Taco run an escort service for truck drivers. He would also note that his ex-wife, whose father was a sergeant in Will County, had told him that Albert Taco was seen at parties that her father hosted in the company of John Johnson. Just a reminder, Johnson was the sheriff named in Robin's lawsuit and had been an undersheriff prior to that. It is at this point that the case does indeed go quiet again until Cindy brings forth the information to Jody. I want to note that Cindy did introduce herself to the Illinois State Police to let them know she was looking into the case, and she alleges that she was cornered and mocked and harassed by investigators at the State Police for trying to find anything out. Through Cindy's involvement, Jody was able to speak with an individual at the Illinois State Attorney's Office that she refers to merely as Dave. She alleges that Dave read her a statement that Tony Marquez's wife gave to the Illinois State Police in 1990, stating that she knew that Tony had murdered Robin. When questioned as to why this wasn't enough to bring any charges, Dave cited the law that you cannot be forced to testify against your spouse. Not sure how the ins and outs of that law work, but it would indeed seem odd that they wouldn't do anything with that information. I also want to add as a side note, Tony was married to his wife until his death in 2021. In 2014, a grand jury would once again look into the disappearance of Robin Abrams. Steve Knickram was subpoenaed to that jury. In his testimony, he provided the information that has been divulged here about Art Burchette and told the Unfound podcast that it appeared that the jury, quote, just wanted to make sense of everything. From what everyone can best tell, the grand jury investigation led nowhere. To close out on Steve, I do want to mention that Steve made copies of all his reports as an investigator, just to do his due diligence to make sure it was there for someone who would take over his investigations after retirement. All information he had pertaining to Robin Abrams and Art Burchette's statement are missing out of the filing cabinet he put them in. He also tried pulling his initial missing persons report that is also missing. So, to be clear, the information that Steve had, plus court filings that should have been archived, are all missing. Next, according to Jody, she was contacted circa 2015-2016 by a man named Joe who had a friend named Jeff. The way it's told is that Jeff bought some farm property in rural Will County off of Joliet Road. Jeff lived in the home on the property, but he allowed the men who were farming it under the previous owner to continue farming it. An associate of the farmers was a man by the name of Officer Sosi, who worked for, you guessed it, the Will County Sheriff's Office. Jeff would go on to explain that he wanted to build an outbuilding on the property, but Sosi was insistent that he could not build it where he wanted to, 
and was doing everything he could to block permits for building. During this dispute, Jeff's house would be shot at in the middle of the night. Remember, this is Will County, and not Chicago or Cook County in general, and his house would eventually be caught on fire with no cause ever determined. In her interview, Jody does state that she did her fact-checking and was able to find news reports on both incidents. I did my best to find the same reports, but was unable to find anything. We're also several years down the road now, and those online pages may simply not exist anymore. She would go on to state that at the time of the 2016 interview, that the burnt house was still standing, as Jeff was having all sorts of trouble getting approval from insurance and other entities to tear the building down and build a new one. While none of this is never 100% tied to Robin, Jody and others are convinced that this location is where Robin's remains were moved to after being removed from Art Burchette's property. At the end of the interview, Ed, Unfound's host, doesn't give out the exact location of the burnt house, but he does state that you can find it on Google Maps, and even see it on the street view. I do have to admit, I spent a lot of time on Google Maps as well, as the Will County Assessor's site, trying to match the name Jeff to any newer-looking home that may have been built after a fire, as well as a number of properties with farm buildings and equipment that looked like a house could have feasibly sat on. I found nothing, and I could never find a property with a burnt house sitting on it. But again, we're several years down the road, and a lot could have changed. In February 2017, after Jody's interview, the basement of the Joliet home that we talked about last episode that was dug up in 1995, was dug up again. FBI and Illinois State Police agents that were on the scene declined to comment on what brought them there, just that new information had been uncovered. It was also never revealed by officials why the basement was dug up in 1995 either. In 2017, though, the media would do some digging, and it would be uncovered that John Romo, Tony Marquez's stepbrother, poured the concrete in that house. This has still never been confirmed to be why the police were there, but I doubt it's merely a coincidence. Or as we can tell, the dig turned up no new evidence. Undeterred as always, Jody would tell the Joliet Patch, quote, I never lost hope. I'll never lose hope. If this isn't the location, we'll keep going. Keep trying. The Patch would also note that in 2012, they had tried to speak with Tony Marquez, quote, Sorry, 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 zero, was the answer that Marquez gave when asked if he had any interest in the case. During the dig, they also tried to get in touch with him, and his response was, quote, I'm not interested, okay? To my knowledge, he has never willfully spoke publicly or to the media about Robin's case. This dig, unfortunately, is the last major development in Robin's case. Tony Marquez passed away in 2021 at the age of 79. To this, Jody Walsh posted on her Facebook page, quote, A very painful chapter of my family's life has come to an end. We just found out the murder suspect in our sister Robin Abrams' case has met his maker. He will not be able to lie anymore. Hebrew 927. October of this year will mark 22 years since Robin Abrams, a woman who was 18 days from facing her harassers in court left her Beecher, Illinois home and has never been seen again. In that time, not much has been formulated in the way of theories, mainly because there's only ever been one. I can't speak for others in the true crime community, but my stance on police officers has always been very broken. 
Meaning I'm neither a black the blue purist, nor am I an all cops are bastards, slash defund the police guy. In my time, even before doing this podcast, consuming true crime, I've read about dedicated investigators, many with a complete disinterest in what they're doing, and a lot of straight-up incompetence. Outside of investigators, I've seen a number of officers do great things for the community, and I've seen more than a few get away with very questionable things. At the end of the day, as individuals, I do sometimes leave it up to a case-by-case basis. When it comes to the institution as a whole, though, I solemnly believe there's a lot of revamping that needs done, and a whole lot of trash needing taken out. This is true now as it was in 1990, because if it wasn't, we wouldn't be discussing this case right now. I myself have a little to say on theories, because even the most hardcore back-the-blue guys would have to be blinder than a bat to see what's going on here. While I do discuss possible scenarios as to what happened based off what's known, I always do my best not to name exactly who I think did the deed when the name is available. Yeah, I always name that person in the list of theories, but I always try to list why they may not have done it as well, sometimes despite my better judgment. I will continue that here by not naming anyone specific. However, I believe without a shadow of a doubt that someone within the Will County Sheriff's Office is responsible for Robin's disappearance and most likely murder. Had she disappeared earlier in the year, and her car was found somewhere on the side of the road with clear signs of a struggle, I may have been more inclined to at least entertain the idea of this being a random act. However, when you disappear 18 days before you're set to testify in a lawsuit against your former employer, who also happens to be law enforcement, and your car is found several miles away, brought there by a tow truck, there's only one clear possibility. One thing I will say is that there are probably two avenues as to why this happened. The first may be that a bunch of officers didn't want to get in trouble, despite most likely only getting a slap on the wrist, and they escalated to murderous violence to get rid of Robin Abrams. The other possibility is that while dating Tony Marquez, Robin got an insight into that inner circle that he was part of, including Sheriff John Johnson, and she became aware of possible mob connections that could have sent those officers off to jail and even get them killed once they were inside. So they all felt Robin had to go. The fact the case was handed off to Illinois State Police, and no eyebrows were raised there, tells me, the early investigators were in on something and messed everything up early. They're not in on it, but just want to keep that blue wall of silence up. Or this case is being looked at by the most incompetent dumbasses on the planet. Even now, if a new investigator wanted to give it a serious crack, there's no telling the amount of damage that has been done to set the investigation back. Since 1990, Tony Marquez, Art Brichette, Clem Messino, and a few other men in Robin's lawsuit have passed away. The number of people who may know what have happened are dwindling. Robin Abrams was a young, bright woman with a go-get-them attitude who clearly wanted to do good. Her only real crime, which is no crime at all, was dating a man she didn't know was married and then taking a stand against the harassment that followed their breakup. She deserved better then, and she deserves better now. When last seen on October 4th, 1990, Robin Abrams was driving her 1989 Red Dodge Daytona hatchback east on Goodenow Road in Will County. She was later then seen at a gas station in Joliet. Her car was later discovered in Harvey, Illinois. She is described as a 28-year-old Caucasian female with brown hair, hazel eyes, and pierced ears. She has brown hair and stands 5'4 and weighs 170 pounds. She was last seen wearing a white long sleeve knit pullover, a black leather jacket, black slacks, black patent leather shoes, 
and a gold pinky ring. She was carrying a light beige pattern clutch purse. If alive today, she would be 59 years old. If you have any information on the disappearance of Robin Abrams, please contact the Illinois State Police at 815-726-6291. As always, I encourage you to share this podcast as well as any of the sources I'm about to give you, because this case needs to be kept alive, and we never know what might trigger someone's memory. If you're looking for any more information on Robin's disappearance, I highly recommend you listen to episode 225 of the Unfound Podcast, hosted by Ed Denstall. This contains both Jody's 2016 interview, as well as Steve Knickram's 2020 interview. It was an invaluable source to this podcast. I also suggest checking out the Help Find Robin Abrams Facebook page. A number of documents I referenced are available there. Also, check out the media page on findrobinabrams.weebly.com. That's findrobinabrams.weebly.com. For a slew of articles, new and old. And there is also a lot of coverage available from the Joliet patch. If you want to let me know what you think happened, have comments or case suggestions, or just wish to follow me on social media, you can email me at midwestmysteryfilespod at gmail.com, or find me on Instagram at midwestmysteryfiles, Twitter at filesmidwest, or by searching for Midwest Mystery Files on Facebook. Just a quick note, if the audio is a bit funky on this episode, I did have to abruptly stop recording in my normal space and then had to make kind of an impromptu space. So hopefully it doesn't vary too much. And lastly, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and now Spotify, please feel free to rate and review the show. This helps make the show more visible in searches and more importantly, helps bring attention to the cases I cover. Thank you to all who have done so already. Take care, everyone, and I will see you all next time.